um, is to be strengthened, to build the foundation, um, to, to allow our souls to catch the wind of the Spirit, that we might breathe you out into a world that needs to hear you. So Lord, I pray right now that what we lack, you would give us, that what we cannot see, you would show us, that we, what we do not know, you would teach us. And most of all, Lord, I pray that what we are not yet, you would make us. For the fame and the glory of your name, we pray these things. And all God's people said, amen. Please remain standing for the reading of the word as Riley comes up and reads today's reading. Romans 6, 1 through 4. Well then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? Of course not. Since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? Or have you forgotten that when we were joined with Christ in baptism, we joined him in his death? For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we may also live new lives. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Thank you, Riley. Grab your Bibles while you're getting yourself situated, I want to ask a question. It's actually the first Talking Points question today, but um, what changes when you become a Christian? Like I'm asking, what changes when you become a Christian? Practically, what changes? No longer a slave to sin, have the power to choose righteousness. Have the mindset of Christ. We are a new creation. Don't do the things you used to do so your patterns of life change. Caitlin. The eyes of your heart are enlightened. Your eternal, that's a good one, your eternal destination. I heard a couple of people say right at the beginning, um, the ultimate answer is obviously everything. But guys, the question becomes for us is, does it? Like, does it really? So if you would, open your Bibles up, not to Romans, but to Ephesians chapter 2. Right, because I, I, we're going to get to Romans here in just a minute, but I want to start in Ephesians chapter 2, and I want, and I want to bring us to a place of, of, of you're going to hear this a lot today, is like, what really changes? I mean, all those things that were shared are true, and so is the answer, the, like the big picture answer of everything changes, but the reality is the thing that changes is we are actually brought from death to life. Right, like, and, and if we would grasp that, because it doesn't, it doesn't feel that way in, in, in a lot of our experience. One, even after coming to faith in Christ, we still struggle with sin issues. But also, we were, we were physically alive before we were Christians, and we're physically alive afterwards. So what does that mean to be, when, when, when the biggest thing that happens to us when we become a Christian is we are brought from death to life, what part of us was brought to life? And the answer is the spiritual part of us. If you look at Ephesians 2, Paul, Ephesians is written by Paul, the same guy that wrote Romans, and he says this, he says, and when you were, I'm in verse 1, and when you were dead in your trespasses and sins, dead is dead, he wasn't speaking metaphorically. He was saying when you were dead, spiritually dead, in your trespasses, in which you walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom you once lived in the passions of your flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. So from the fall in the garden, we have been enemies of God. 
and then hear those great words, but God. Rich in mercy, because of his great love for us, even when we were dead, God made us alive. Right? That is the gospel. I mean, that is from death to life, that is the gospel message. So the question that I'm asking today, as we're going to go to Romans here in just a minute, is are you walking in the path of life? Like, if that's, if that's true, that as a believer in Jesus, and I know that not everybody that is here is, I don't know all of who is and all of who isn't, it's not my job to know, the Holy Spirit knows, but if you are his, are you walking in that path of life? And Paul is going to show us that as he, as he walks us through, it is grace that brought you to life. So, as Riley just read for us in Romans 6, 1 and 2, set sin aside and live Walking that path of life. Live like a live person. And how do we do that? So, the first thing we're going to look at today is that grace is what brought us to life. Grace is what brought us to life. And it's been a little while since we have been in, um, like, since we've been in Romans. It's been almost a month since we were in the book of Romans because we took a break for the resurrection season. Um, And it's been longer still since I've sort of outlined what is it Paul is trying to do here in the book of Romans. So Paul, the apostle Paul, he was Saul. He was persecuting the church. He has an encounter, like Jesus invades his life, right? And he becomes the apostle Paul who is used by God to take the gospel to the nations. He's the one that takes the gospel to Europe. And he writes this letter to Rome, a church he'd never been in, and it's sort of his master thesis of here is God's story. Here is the gospel story from beginning to end. And he does it through these therefore statements. So he's building this argument from Romans chapter 1 all the way through to the very end of the letter, but he's building these arguments of here's who God is, here's what the problem is, and here's what God has done about it. So if you would, open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 1, and I want to walk through just to to remind you, here's how grace brought you to life. It's the story of the book of Romans. If you go to, so in Romans chapter 1, in verse 24, he says this. It's the first therefore we'll look at. So so in Romans 1, Paul's presenting the problem. The problem is the world has fallen. The world has rebelled against God and sin entered the world. And sin isn't just bad behavior. Sin is everything from bad behavior to hurricanes. Like those are all a product of the rebellion. So sin didn't just corrupt humanity. It corrupted all of creation. And so he says here in verse 24, therefore, God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, which means God gave us what we wanted, to the impurity and the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Why? Why would God do that? Well, he tells us, because, and here's the, here is the problem of humanity. It was mine for the first half of my life. It's, it's all of humanity. And, and frankly, it's still a struggle in my life as a believer, but it's all of our problems. Here is our struggle. We exchange the truth about God for a lie and we worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. So guys, that can show itself in every way from like, you know, Mother Earth and environmentalism and things that, that, are, that is just out of control, like radical. 
But, it can, but here's how it shows itself the most. If we just want to be honest, how do we worship the creature rather than the creator way more than Mother Earth or something like Right, we worship, like, I love me some Doug, right? Like, I, I mean, we worship ourselves. That's Paul's point. Paul's point is we are self, by, we have become self-worshippers. Which, which you go, and maybe you're going, yeah, but wait a minute, I don't even like me, right? But, I'm li- but you're living your life for you. So what are you worshiping? Right? That's the question. So that's ultimately what Paul's getting to there. And so, so then he goes on in chapter 2, and the second therefore is chapter 2, verse 1. He says, therefore, guys, since that's everybody's problem, and yet you guys are all bickering back and forth about who has a bigger problem, he's like, in verse 2 of, of, of um, chapter 2, verse 1, he says, therefore, you don't have an excuse. There is no excuse for how you judge others. For in passing judgment on one another, you condemn yourselves because you, because you, pass, you, you do the exact same things. He's saying everybody is equal in the sin issue. There are no degrees of it. And then he goes on to talk about, and yet not only do we judge one another, then if we actually talk to somebody about God who, is, who judges sin, what do we say? How can God be so judgmental? When we are so judgmental, he's the, at least the one that has the right to be. So he outlines in the rest of chapter 2, he's like, he's like, guys, not only is God just in his judgment because he's God, but we would want him to be. We talked about that. Like everybody wants just justice. Nobody wants a criminal to go free. If, we, if our judges were letting criminals go free, when they do that, we get, rightfully so, really mad. But somehow we're supposed to let God, God is supposed to just let all of our rebellion just go, go by. Like, I, I didn't see that over there. But then he goes on and he says, in, in chapter 3, he's like, hey, but let me tell you what God did about it. He starts the story of, so because everybody has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, he has justified us through faith in his son. So then the question starts to come up. And, and because he's making an argument to a very Greco-Roman group, people that were, some of them were converted Jews, some of them were Romans who had become Christians. And he's saying, I'm going to make a very intellectual argument. He's going to say, so how does that happen? If our rebellion is our problem and somehow God has made it right, how did he do that? So in chapter 4, he's like, here's how he did it. 2,100 years before Christ even was born, God called a shot through Abraham and said, hey, Abraham, through you, I'm going to bring the one who's going to fix the problem. Now go to chapter 5, verse 1. So Abraham believes in the promises of God. It's, it's credited to him as righteous. And then in chapter 5, verse 1, he says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, So we've been justified by, we've been made right with God by believing in the promise of God that he will do it. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he goes on, and this is the section we've been in and are in, is this idea of how does God impute, so we've rejected his righteousness. Hey God, we don't need you, I'm I'm my own own person. Then in chapters basically four, five, six, seven, Part A, he starts talking about how, do I imp- how did God imp- give us his righteousness? That's kind of where we're going to be today. But then he goes on to chapter 8, and he says, look at chapter 8, verse 1, and here's our fourth therefore statement in the gospel story. So the problem is we've all rebelled. We exchanged the truth of God for a lie. We all are, are judgmental, and we want our own version of justice. He says, but we have been made right, justified only one way through Christ. And then he goes on to say, but oh, by the way, we still struggle. That's chapter 7. 
as Christians, we still struggle. And, he go, and he, so he reminds us and himself, I think, in chapter 8, therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is a huge therefore. He's saying, guys, the sin problem of the world has only been fixed one way, and it was through the sacrifice of his son. What we cannot do, God did. That's the gospel. Right now, how, how does that work? Well, if, I didn't have you read it, but remember the, the theme of this whole letter is the gospel. And, the, and the, the two most important verses in the letter are right at the very beginning, verse, chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, when Paul says, because of all of the stuff I'm about to write to you, he, I mean, he, he writes 16 chapters, long letter for back then, and he says, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the, it, the gospel, God's story of salvation, is the power of God unto all who believe, first to the Jew and then to the Greek. And then he says this, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. Right? That, that's how the gospel works. Because God's righteousness is, a, is not only applied to our lives, but his righteousness in just his willingness to save us is made evident in the gospel. So look at your second talking points question. All of that is just to bring us to life. All of that is just to bring us to life. So here's the question. Are you alive? Right? Are you alive? What's your proof? I'm not asking for the, don't, don't say anything out loud. Right? I'm, I'm going to ask you this one. I'm not asking for, for out loud. But guys, th- I want you to think about this. If you were arrested for being a Christian... Would there be enough evidence to convict you? And I'm not talking about your morality. I'll just leave that there for now. Paul, though, answers, here's how you know you're alive. See, see, fortunately, you don't have to wait for me to give you a list to hear the things you're supposed to be doing as a Christian. Paul tells you what you're supposed to do. You know, when he, you know where he tells you what we're supposed to do if we really are made? If chapters 1 really through 11 are true... The gospel has fixed the problem and brought us to life. Guess where he tells us what the answer to whether we're alive is? 12.1. So go there. That's our last of the five therefores. So this is, this is Paul saying, here's the literally the living proof that you have been made alive. This is all God wants. It's all God asks. No big deal. Therefore. Now, the ESV puts the therefore later, but in the NASB, or like it's the first word in the Greek. Therefore, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God. What is, God what, is, what is the proof that we've made alive? Present your body a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God. For this is your spiritual service of worship. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That you might what? That you might prove the gospel. It's what, guys, it's, it's what the Holy Spirit led all of our prayer time in. And what Sean shared, I mean, like, I, I love, I, I, I say this a lot, but I wish you guys could, could see, like, my note sheet, half of which never gets said anyway, um, but, and, and how all of these guys, like, the Holy Spirit orchestrates verses that are turned to, things that are said. I didn't tell these people that's what they were supposed to talk about today. I didn't tell anybody here this is what you're supposed to pray about, but this was the theme of the prayer time today. Why? It was about this, are we living our lives 
It was what Tom started us with. You don't get much more, therefore present your body a living and holy sacrifice than jumping into the Roman Colosseum and taking on some gladiators with nothing but a monk's robe. Right? And the word of God and the name of Christ. That's all God wants from us. That's how we know we're alive. Now what begs the question, guys, is if we're not doing that, if we're not living our lives a living and holy sacrifice, are we really alive? And that brings us back to our reading today, which was Romans chapter 6. So go back to Romans 6, and we're going to pick it up, actually, in our second point. When we talk about, are you walking like a live person? We're going to ask the question, let me get there, we're going to, we're going to look at, so if we, if we are, he's, there's only four verses, he says, set sin aside so that you will walk like a live person. Those are his two points. So look at chapter 6, verse 1. What, what, will, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. That's, that's an emphatic way. What he's saying is, may that never, in the Greek, that, actually, that word, it's just one word, but it actually means, may that never be so in our lives ever. Right? So he's saying, so, so, so you, but, but it doesn't it feel a little bit like we just entered into the middle of a conversation? We say, so what he's saying is, so, so since you're saying grace covers sin, should we say that we should just sin more so grace is bigger? Like the more I sin... The more grace covers, right? It's, it's, like a, it's like the bigger my cake, the more frosting. Awesome. He's like, no, not awesome. But doesn't it, it feels like we entered into the middle of a conversation. And we did, because there is no chapter 6 in Paul's letter. right? He is, he is doing what's called rhetoric. It was really common in the Greco-Roman world. So Paul is using a, something they're familiar with. What it was, it was a lot like debating, except that you would preempt their question. Like the whole letter of Romans is this. Hey, here's some truth. Now, now this is the question you're going to ask me, isn't it? So here's my answer before you even get to ask it. That's called rhetoric. So he's, so he's pulling back from verses, look at verse 20 and 21 of chapter 5. He's saying the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. I'm not going to go back and reteach chapter 5, but basically what he, remember what we've talked about this, it was, it's really chapters 3 and 5, but he talks about this idea that the point of the law, the point of the Old Testament, the point of the rules is to demonstrate our need. It's to show us, hey, this is, this is just a sampling of what it looks like to worship a holy God. And we go, man, yeah, I can't do that. And he's like, that's the point. That's my whole point, that you can't. But I know someone, and I'm going to send someone, my son, who can, and he'll do it for you. So he says, um, and then in verse 21, he says, so that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's going, so now since you said that, since I just taught you that, that ultimately the more sin is evident, the greater grace looks. You're going to ask me the question, but doesn't that mean that, that we should just sin more so that way grace looks better, right? And he's like, no, no way, not happening. And then look at the second part, the last part of chapter, or verse 2. He says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? 
Now, guys, you, we read that and we go, man, that, that could be a call to perfection. How can we who've died to sin still be sinners? In other words, how can we still sin? The reality is we still sin, right? And, and, and there are people that sadly will take a verse like that and they'll say, so, see, this is what it means that Christians aren't supposed to sin anymore. Because he's saying right here, you're not, guys, what we're, what we're not supposed to do anymore is enjoy it. What, what that actually means, what he's saying here is, are you, how can someone who has died to sin live a lifestyle of loving sin? That is not something a Christian should be able to do. Not for very long. Not without feeling massive conviction. If, if you're living a lifestyle loving sin, never feeling conviction, not feeling like you need to confess and repent it and repent from it, that's where you need to stop and go, am I alive? Have I really been brought from death to life? Because Paul is saying, no, you can, it's, it's a picture of being grafted in to who Christ is. But guys, often when we say something like, so stop sinning, here's what we think. Stop doing bad things. Right? St- stop looking at that stuff on the internet. Stop, don't, you know, don't drink, don't smoke. You know, back in the day, don't dance, don't hang out with people that do that sort of, like, like we start thinking morality and behavior. And guys, those things are important, obviously. I mean, some of those things are important to God. Like he does care about our behavior, obviously. He wants us to, even Paul writes about keeping our behavior excellent, right? Absolutely. But, but what, those are all sins of commission, meaning we commit them. What if some of that living, like, un, un, like living still like a lifestyle of loving sin, what if it looks like a bunch of sins of omission? what you're not doing. See, we don't think of sin this way. What if living in sin, the way he says you shouldn't live in it, just looks like not making the Lord the number one thing in your life? What if it looks like treating Jesus' great commandment, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, and we treat that as the great suggestion? Well, that's for other people. I don't need to, I'm a Christian, but I don't need to do that. I don't need to make disciples. I don't need to be involved in the church. What if it looks like in, in, in Matthew chapter 6 when Jesus says, seek first my kingdom and my righteousness, and all these things are going to get added to you. You're like, yeah, but I'll get around to that as soon as I get done building my kingdom so that I can live that righteous life. Guys, how much clearer does Jesus have to be then when he says, if anyone wants to follow after me, he must take up, deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For those who wish to save their life will lose it. Guys, he's not talking about the monk in the, I mean, that's an example. He's not talking about die, like physical death. He's saying those who wish to save their lifestyle are ultimately going to lose it. Because this life is not what this is about. Eternity goes on forever. And what we do here now matters for then. So he says, those who wish to hold on to their life, like tightly, are going to lose it. And those that are willing to let go of their life for my sake and the gospel's sake and the kingdom's sake, they are going to find it. For what will it profit a man to... I mean, guys, how much clearer does this have to be about are we really living like God is our number one priority when he says, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? He's the richest man in the world. I don't even know who that is right now. 
guessing he doesn't know Jesus, and none of it's going to matter the minute he stops breathing. That's reality. But we, but we can be so drawn to that sort of thinking. Kind of lost with where I'm at, supposed to be right now. That's okay. What if not living that lifestyle, like not living in sin, a lifestyle sin, isn't just put away the bad stuff, but it's just how much time am I spending on my phone? How much time am I spending binge-watching shows on Netflix? How much of my time am I spending in recreational hobbies? How much of my time am I spending? Like, like it's not, those things aren't bad in and of themselves. But if you're, if, if you're saying, I'll get around to the God stuff once I get this other stuff figured out, that's living a lifestyle of sin. By definition, it's not putting God first. Okay, so the question we're asking today is... Um, what is the question? Oh, sorry. Are we walking like a live person? So one, if the gospel is what has brought you to life, if grace brought you to life, then set aside sin and walk like you're alive. And that's his last two, the last two things we're going to, the last two verses we're going to look at today. So look at verse three. He says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ have been baptized into death? Guys, and then, he, and then he kind of finishes that thought in verse 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. Again, what is all this death talk? What he's talking about is he, it, it's, it's language of incorporation. It's language of assimilation. When he's talking about being baptized into death, I mean, yes, it is a, we, when we do baptisms here in our horse trough, we talk about how baptism is a picture of what? The death going under the water and burial and then the resurrection of Jesus Christ coming out of the water. So there is that imagery he's alluding to. But he's also saying that it's because you have joined with, and that's what we're going to see next week, because you have joined with Christ in his death, his death has now been applied to your life. How are you going to live it? Look at your third talking points question. I'm going to give you a minute to think about what needs to die in order to have better answers for question number three. So question number three says this. Think about your upcoming week. There are 168 hours in it. Guys, everyone here, unless we go to be with the Lord between now and next week when we gather again, Lord willing, or he comes back, every one of us gets 168 hours to spend. It's the only question is how. Guys, time is the most precious commodity you've got. Why? Because we're not making any more of it. Money, you can go earn more money. Talent, you can get better. Time, nothing you can do about that. When this hour is gone, it is gone. What are you spending it on? That's the question. So I want to give you a minute to just jot these down. I, guys, I'm not here to guilt you. I'm not here to look at your answers. You're not turning this in. You're not getting a grade. But I do want you to stop and think about this. For everything from the time you spend reading and responding to God's word, prayer, discipleship, how much time in each of these days are you, of the 24 hours will you devote to kingdom things? So take a minute and just jot down a number in each of those boxes. So if you're here on Sunday, you could put two, at least, for Sunday. <laughs> Thanks, Jamie. Do you see what I'm asking? 
Like two hours out of 24, if that's all you did was walk in when we opened and, and, or when we start and leave right when we leave or when we're done, that's two for Sunday. Some of you would be a lot more. Some of you were here at seven this morning. You're going to stay till two in the afternoon cleaning up. It's a lot of hours. So jot some, jot some numbers down for every day of the week. Mm-hmm. Great question. Our five pillars are, so I don't know if you heard Debbie's question, how would you define kingdom things? Our five pillars are that we are word, like that, that we're focused on the word and prayer, that we are discipleship directed. So are you, are you in the process of actively discipling people, like, like in that day, right? Service oriented. So are, we, like, are you serving in some way, serving the body of Christ, serving the kingdom of God? doesn't have to be just here, but serving the kingdom of God. And the last one is mission-focused. So when you're at work, if you're, if you're at work and you are genuinely like looking for the cleaning dude to ask him if he loves Jesus, that's time. Right? So that's a good question. Thank you. Guys, do you see my point? Like I said, I'm, not, I'm honestly not trying to guilt anybody. I mean, my answers aren't great either, honestly. And, I, and I, this is my job. I mean, I get to focus on God things as my career, praise the Lord. But I'm just saying that, that doesn't necessarily mean it's kingdom-minded, frankly. I mean, I could be doing it for my own stuff. But even apart from that dilemma in my own spiritual walk um, is just the, is, is you see, like when you put it on paper and you go, okay, I have 24 hours tomorrow. How much of that 24, like, like I can say, because remember what we're, ta- like, we're talking about. You say, am I alive? Yes and amen. Have I been born again? Yes and amen. Does your life look like it? I don't know. And what if you just say, and, and oh yeah, of course it does, because I just live more morally than those other people out there. Nah. Right? No. But I don't read my Bible. I don't pray. I don't, do, I, I don't serve at church. I, you know, like, like those kinds of things. Guys, that is not kingdom-minded, right? So, so the question, like, but when you start putting it on paper, you go, okay, so what am I, well, that's why I was saying, what am I really doing for my king? I can say all day long, he is my number one priority. Do the, does the most precious commodity I have say that? That's the question that I'm trying to get us to think about just for your own edification. And again, no guilt, just genuinely just edification. So he's saying if, you have, if, if his death has been applied to your life, Christ died your death that you might live his life, that's where he goes next. Look what he says. He says, so he died and we have been, his death has been applied to us, last part of verse 4, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now, I'm going to take out that middle section, that little prepositional phrase. I'm just going to, so when he says, so he says, Christ died in, in order to, so that. Those are the kinds of things that we need to look when we're reading our Bibles. Go, oh, wait a minute, there's something important here. So that what? So that we might walk in the newness of life. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if you have anyone who is in Christ, someone said it when we were talking about what's changed. Anyone who is in Christ has been, has been um, is, anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old things have passed away, the new have come. If you have, if that's you, guys, think Jesus did not die and apply his death to your life if you're born again to leave you in the cemetery. 
He did it so that you would live life abundantly. Do you remember when he calls Lazarus out of the dead, out of the grave? You know, the whole, the whole scene, and I'll skip all the details, but it's like, and he brings him out. Remember the last thing he says in the scene? Because what's, what's Lazarus's condition? He's alive, but what's wrong? He's wrapped up. He's like, you know, hey, hey thanks for making me alive, Jesus. Right? And, and so Jesus is like, hey, would you unwrap the dude? Like, seriously, unwrap him. I didn't make him alive again so that he could spend the rest of his life living like this. And yet that's how we live, guys. It is. We live these, like, at, at best, we're just hoping to not, like, blow up our lives. Or at best, we're just hoping to survive. Jesus did not call us out of the grave to just survive. He called us out of the grave to thrive. I came that you might have life and have it in abundance, he says. Are we living that abundant life? Am I living that abundant life? Am I believing that even if the gladiator throws, stabs me, it doesn't matter because I am going to be with the Lord. To me, to live is Christ and die is gain. Right? Like, like, do I live that way? Do I spend my time living, looking like I live that way? Or am I just... Man, but Doug, you don't understand. Life is so hard and, and you know, the family and everything going on. And, and guys, and I get it. I get it. I, I do. I understand family is hard. I understand the fight just not to live in depression and discouragement. Believe me, I get that. And I also get that every time I'm there, which is way too often, it is sin. That's all, you, that's all it is. It is sin. Because you remember the first question I asked. We're going to land this plane with this. But did you remember the, the first question I asked? What changes? Right, Not the question of the day, but what changes when you become a Christian? And like we said, the, the ultimate answer is everything should. Guys, becoming a Christian should completely reorient our lives. That's what Paul is telling us. That's what these, these four little verses are telling us that being a Christian should completely reorient our life. Turn to Philippians chapter 3. It was our calling passage that John read, so I'm, gonna, I'm just going to quickly remind us. This is Paul, the same guy that wrote Romans. Guys, Paul, Paul was on his, 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 in his world, in his people group, he was on the road to prosperity. He was best life now, prosperity gospel. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was probably on his way to becoming a high priest. I mean, it just didn't get any better than his life. And he gave it all away for Jesus. And if you know anything about his life after that, it got really hard. And five years after he writes Romans, he says in verse 7, but everything that was gained to me, all of that... All of that road to success stuff, was, is, I, I count it as human excrement is what it actually means. I won't use the real word because we have kids in the room. I count it as garbage. He's saying all that stuff that I was shooting for, all the stuff that I was climbing the career ladder for, all the stuff that I was setting aside for my retirement, all the stuff that I was fill in the blank, fill in the blank, fill in the blank. He's like, I count it as nothing. I count all of it as loss, but for this one thing, for the surpassing value of knowing my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then he goes on at the end and he says, and John read it to us, but he says in verse 12, I have, 
guys, I haven't gotten there. I haven't gotten to the place where I can always live in that moment, where I can always live going for me to live as Christ and die as gain, where I can always live going, you know what, when I'm seeing those people eating that good food and, and driving that nice, whatever they would have, a cart, I don't even know if they had wagons back then, and, and I see all these wonderful things, I, it's not beyond, or I can, I can instead of you know, working my way to, to trying to get to Rome, on a, working my way over on a slave ship, I'm going to you know, actually get to li- sit in a cruise cabin because I have all this money and I'm cruising half of my life now, and all these, he's like, I, all of that, I, I still see that, and I go, eh, that looks really good, that food looks really good, but then I stop, and I go, but... Christ Jesus has made me his own, and nothing else matters. Right? The, the question for us becomes, are, guys, are we living that path of life that, he's, that he died to give us, or are we just walking life's path? Like, are you just letting life happen to you? Like I said earlier, time is the most precious commodity you've got. What are you going to spend your 168 hours this week doing for, for Jesus? If he really is Lord of your life, if he really is the King of kings and Lord of lords, the one who is and was and is to come, the Almighty, if he really is going to come again and establish his kingdom, and what we do now to help his kingdom come and his will be done on earth and heaven affects our eternity, what are you going to do about it? What am I going to do about it? Time is short, eternity's long, hell is still hot, and Jesus still saves. But the world needs to know it. So what are we going to do about it? What are we going to do about it? As the music team comes up, I have some questions that I'm going to ask each of the people groups. I'm just going to ask you to sit and think about this. I'm going to start with the young ones, and I'm going to go to the old ones. You can decide what age group you're in on your own. But I was just trying to think of some ways to, to bring it from sort of the general, um, yeah, okay, I get it, to a little more personal. So children in the room, whatever age you think that is for you, children, are you re- pursuing learning why you believe what you believe? Not just what you believe. I'm not just saying, are you learning your Bible stories? I'm asking are all of you, young people, one, two, three eyes on me. Do you know why you believe it? Because if you don't, the world will drag you from it. There are really good reasons to believe Christ has risen. If your parents aren't sharing those with you, come talk to me. I will. Young teens, again, I don't know what that is, age-wise. Do you see yourself as a vital part of this church? Not waiting to get to a place where you can become. You are part of this church. So whether it's here on Sundays or throughout the week or in in D groups, are you jumping in? Because you're not waiting to turn a certain age before you can actually start serving your king. Young adults who, frankly, are setting the spiritual temperature for this church, guys. I'm going to ask you just a question about how you're living your lives. Are you making decisions, like for your, because this is life of, this is a season of transition. Old high school, college, whatever age you think that is. Are you making decisions based on kingdom things? 
where, where, whether to go to college or not, where to go to college, what to major in, where to live, where to move, who to marry, whether to marry. Is Jesus just sort of a, hey, can you come along with me on this? Or are you going, man, what in my life will bring God the most glory and give him an opportunity to use me for his kingdom the most? That's the direction I need to go. How about us adults? Are you prioritizing your time, your talent, your treasure for kingdom things? How much of your 168 hours this week is going to get used for Jesus? I'll just put it plainly. Are you living for your retirement or for your eternity? What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Guys, retirement sitting around playing golf, going to the gym all the time, cruising the world. None of those things by themselves are bad, like in their proper place. Making that your life's goal to live that life is wholly unbiblical. Seniors, again, let you decide who belongs in that category. Are you still in the game? You have a lot to offer. Like I said, there's no retirement. There's no aging out of the body of Christ. You have a lot to offer, and we need your wisdom. So, walking like a live person. Let me pray. Father, I just thank you, Lord, for um, the beauty of your grace and truth. Lord, I thank you for the reality that, um, that Christ did what we could not do. What we cannot do, you did. That is, you died our death that we might live your life. Lord, I do want to pray. I pray that um, for each of us here, not, not because we have to, but because the beauty of the gospel and what you have done for us compels us to want to, to want to give our lives, whether the youngest in the room to the oldest in the room, that we would just want to follow hard after you because of what you have done for us, that we would want to give our lives away for the king because you're king and because you have invited us to your table. I thank you in Jesus' name.